them, and I know that they each model what we've just seen in Jesus' life. They model Jesus' merciful and intentional movement toward outsiders. Um, this is not a message about Will and Tim, but I want you to be encouraged by that, that they both um, serve faithfully beyond our walls to reach and serve the least of these and the lost. Uh, Tim serves with Master's Men, uh, and they're discipling men to reach men in their workplaces. That's the quickest way I could say that. And Will volunteers with Young Life Capernaum, which often uh, meets in our building, uh, ministering among our friends with special needs. So their example in this passage today, as we walk through it, are going to call each of us to model in our lives Jesus's movement toward outsiders. But the emphasis of Dr. Luke, as we said last week in, in Luke 5, is, is not as much on uh, him being an example for us to model, though we will have application at the end for that. But it's on demonstrating Jesus' authority to forgive sins, which we all need, and to explain why in the world that he goes to the outsider and not the insider, if you will. So let's look in the, the first scene um, where Jesus goes to a physical outsider, one who has uh, a, a physical impairment, and one, because of that, who is sidelined, uh, marginalized, left out, potentially um, looked at as if, well, you probably got what you deserved. So you are, you are on the outskirts of community at best. You are a physical outsider, and there was physical distance, just like we saw with the leper. There's physical distance, but then there's also just logistics of that to, to get anywhere in that time, he was paralyzed and on a mat. Now, he got here because he had friends who lifted him on that mat to get him in the presence of Jesus. But we see Jesus fishing for, and you can put the first uh, slide up there. He's fishing for this physical outsider. But I want you to know D Dr. Luke's main point is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He's going to heal this physical outsider. But the main point of this passage is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. First of all, we see that there's this unquestionable need. Jesus is in a house. We're in Capernaum. There's a swarming crowd. The crowd is, um, has within it all kinds of folks who've heard about Jesus, who've come to see. Maybe they also want to be healed like the paralytic. But the house is also chocked full of investigators, chocked full of religious leaders who are there to, with a suspicious eye, to investigate this Jesus of Nazareth, particularly the scene we looked at last week. If you, if you even weren't here, take a peek right above in Luke 5, where you see Jesus healed the leper, and he says, don't go tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. He cleansed the leper from his leprosy immediately. And he said, don't go tell anyone, but go through the appropriate process because I don't want your witness of me to be invalidated. But we said this also, Jesus was actually doing that to initiate the investigation that's now underway. Because if this man was healed, this, man, this leper was cleansed, they have to say, how in the world were you cleansed? And he said, well, this 
teacher from Nazareth, I think his name was Jesus, cleansed me. My leprosy is gone. And then he would have had to go through the appropriate process. Um, he would have made an offering, etc. And after a week-long process would have been pronounced, and probably reluctantly, I guess you were cleansed. But what that means is they now have to go and investigate as the religious leadership in Israel, and that's who's in the crowd. It's very important. It's swarming with lots of people, but those are the folks with whom Jesus will make direct confrontation. This paralytic and his friends, um, again, the paralytic would have been viewed um, kind of side-eyed as you're probably being punished for a specific sin. Um, that's not saying that's true. That's saying that's how they perceived it. And notice um, his faith and the faith of his friends. And Jesus sees their faith, says seeing their faith. And I think he's saying the paralytic and his friends saying, if we could just get him to you, Jesus, you can address his unquestionable need. But we're going to see that his unquestionable need, everybody could see he's on a mat. He's paralyzed. They probably knew him because you didn't come from very far away. This unquestionable need is actually met with a very questionable response by Jesus. He sees their faith, they're busting through the roof. Um, there were two types of roof back then. You kind of had the hodgepodge, which probably would have been my family, um, which would have been mud and sticks and whatever you could throw together to have, you know, but there'd be a leak over here and a leak over there. That's what our family is like the last three years we've had in our house. Lord willing, the repair will hold. All right. Um, but the second type would have, and potentially this was this kind, we don't know for sure, but it was an arch and slab where you would have had these slabs of tiles that would, could have been removed. Now, they also would have had a lot of times stairs or ladders to get up on their roof. They would have spent time on their roof. You didn't have a lot of property, so you made do with what you could. They would have gotten up there potentially to, you know, make use of the breeze or whatever. And so they, he sees their faith because they get up there and they're willing to bust through the roof, probably not their house, to get to the front of Jesus. Everyone can see his unquestionable need. I want you to have that in your head. There, no one is questioning if this man needs a, a, work, a, a miracle from God. And Jesus sets the stage for what is the point of this passage, of Luke recording it, with a questionable response. Verse 20, look there. It says, seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven you. Wait, what? He, I'm here to get healed. I'm here to, to no longer be um, in a, a rigid position. I'm here to have movement. I'm here to to walk. It's very questionable. So now that causes the investigators who are there to begin questioning, wait a second, what do you mean his sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verses 21 to 25 there. So their reasoning and then Jesus's response. Now Jesus, uh, Jewish rabbis would have taught that all physical ailments were a sign of God's displeasure and very possibly a punishment for some specific sins. So they believe that God was the one punishing this paralytic and only God could forgive his sin. Now they're off on the first part because Jesus later will say, he'll, he'll question his disciples. Well, you know, why is this person blind? 
I believe it was blind, because he wants to test this categorizing. He wants to test this paradigm through which, oh, well, if you have an ailment, God must be cursing you. And Jesus said, no, it's a little off. But they are right that only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees see Jesus pronouncing this man's sins forgiven. They see that as blasphemy. You are out of line, out of bounds, a disrespect for God and his authority. This is blasphemy. Because they question who can forgive sins but God alone. And that is actually the right question. But they were getting there based on, Uh, on faulty premises. So Jesus is aware of his critics in the crowd. He's aware of their reasonings and their resistance to him. So he brings their disbelief out into the open. He brings it to the surface in front of everyone. Remember, this crowd is packed into a house. They're probably hanging out windows, peeking in windows. You know, they're probably getting a good whiff of Middle Eastern body odor on a hot day. I mean, our Texas body odor is bad too, but they didn't have um, deodorant back then, maybe. I don't know. But they're all crammed in, and Jesus, in this moment, he brings their disbelief out in the open and, and at the same time demonstrates his deity and his authority. Verse 22, Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Okay, so Lock in. The crowd can tell he's locking eyes with certain religious leaders, probably dressed, not incognito, but want everybody to know we're here. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? And then he says, which is easier? To say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk? Obviously, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one could verify if your sins had actually been forgiven or not. No one would know except God alone. Verse 24, here's the point of the passage. Let me, let me give you a really quick aside to make fun of myself. The very first time I taught, um, in a a, a church in Dallas years and years ago with the youth, I'm telling you this so that you don't do this. Okay. I did the steps to getting to Jesus. And I had these little steps that went up like there's a roof, okay? It was a good, noble attempt. But that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage isn't isn't how do you get yourself in front of Jesus. It's not really, it is lauding the the friend's faith, but this isn't about, the point is this. Verse 24, but, which is easier? Sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says, you're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But so that you may know that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, that's a messianic title, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, he's looking at him. I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Now, just for a moment, ignore the Pharisees. But in the midst of him confronting the Pharisees, he takes his eyes locked on them, and he puts them on the man who probably most people didn't look at. Most people say, I see him from a distance, but I'm going to look away because um, I, I can't handle it, or I, you know, there needs to be separation 
spiritually, emotionally, I don't know, whatever it is. Imagine being that paralytic and Jesus locks eyes on with the Pharisees. Where's confrontation going on? And then in compassion, he looks to him. And he says the words that he believed and hoped for, but also had much disbelief, probably like, well, he probably wouldn't have time for me. How are we going to get into the house? And his friends are like, we're getting into the house. You get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Go home any other day before this wasn't just, all right, I guess I'll go home. It may have been, hey, two of my friends are still here. The other two left early, so it's going to be wobbly, but we'll try to get me home. So that you may know, you questioning me, you wondering, who in the world are you saying your sins are forgiven? But so that you know, not only are his sins forgiven, I have the authority to do it. I'm going to demonstrate that through the power of God, raising up this paralytic to walk. And he walked immediately. Any of you, if you've had uh, hip surgery, knee surgery, you, you know, or you just sprained your ankle and you kind of took it easy for even a couple weeks, right? You go out and try to do what you did two weeks before, before the injury, you can't do it. Now you might be able to do it somewhat, but now imagine that your muscles have atrophied for years. Imagine that your, perhaps your bones have grown less dense and sturdy, but immediately he got up. He didn't just have the, the ability to kind of get up like a, a baby deer or giraffe. He got up and he picked up his stretcher and he went home. That's power. And Jesus says, I'm letting you know I have the power to do the more important and deeper issue, which is to forgive his sins. But I'm going to do both. Now, we said this last week, Jesus can heal at any moment, but he's not required to. But he does in this moment to demonstrate something. You need to know this. They say, we have seen remarkable things this day. That word remarkable things is also um, a term used for miracles or signs. There's six terms in the gospels, six different terms. We've seen wonderful things, remarkable things, signs. All of them point to miraculous power of God only kind of moments of healing the blind and the cleansing the leper and healing the paralytic. But they all are this. They are not the point. They are pointing to the point. What is the point? Look in your English Bible, verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself in the third person, has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. The unquestionable need was met with a questionable response and they're questioning in their hearts, but he demonstrates unquestionable power and authority. I just want you to see that. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees came investigating with a suspicious side eye. They got uncontrovertible evidence. They could not deny it. They got incontrovertible, excuse me, evidence of Jesus being the Son of Man, Messiah, the Son of Man, who has the authority to forgive sin, but they willfully choose to reject him. It's very important. Next week, we're going to bring this sucker to a boil. But Jesus is the one initiating the investigation. Last week, leper, 
Jesus is the one invest, uh, instigating the conflict. He's saying, it's time. Gloves are coming off because I know what's in your heart and that needs to be surfaced. Because ultimately, where will that lead? It will lead to the ultimate rejection, which is to say, we don't want you as Messiah. You come from the power of Beelzebul. You're of the devil. And later they'll say, crucify him, crucify him. But make no mistake, it wasn't because Jesus lacked giving them evidence of his power. They did not deny it. They don't deny it here. They don't deny it next week. They don't deny it the following weeks. They cannot. Now, we move from Jesus being questioned, yet demonstrating this unquestionable authority to forgive sins, to now he's going to be critiqued for the company that he keeps. In, the scene, uh, in this scene, Luke shows us Jesus has this audacity to move toward outsiders, specifically a vocational outsider, if you can go to the next slide, named Levi, or we mostly know him as Matthew. If I do it backwards and forth, don't let that confuse you, it's the same guy. Okay, we good? Levi, Matthew, same guy. Verse 27, after that, he went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He left everything behind and got up. Second got up. He got up and followed him to follow him. Notice Jesus already had Levi in mind because he intentionally goes to his tax booth. Notice Jesus doesn't hope that maybe he'll meet Levi on a Sabbath at the temple service. Jesus goes to Matthew's turf. He goes to Matthew's office. He goes to where Matthew traffics most of his day. He doesn't say, well, I, I hope that he'll come around to when we get together as God's people. He goes and Jesus calls Levi to follow him. And Levi leaves everything and follows, follows him immediately. And very soon now, Matthew, who had been invited, now begins to be the one doing the inviting, inviting Jesus into his home for a dinner with his friends and business buddies. Verse 29. And Levi gave a big reception. Uh, Luke uses the word um, a great, a mega party. This is no small deal. Um, this isn't the, you know, the cheap stuff. He's throwing a bash and it's big. And uh, there was a great crowd of tax collectors like himself. Those are the folks he did, you know, went to conventions with and all that. And other people who were reclining at the table with him. So not only was it a big bash, kind of a let's mill around, they were reclining at table. This is a very intimate thing. Most of us in here wouldn't be able to do it. We'd be so nervous of the physical touch or the closeness or the, well, I don't know if you could smell my Texas B.O., whatever. We, they, they laid on each other's chest. They, they, they reclined on each other. So it's not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people that close. And Jesus is part of this party that Levi has invited. He's invited his friends and lots of them. Levi's friends around town, but especially around the synagogue, they would have been frowned upon as questionable, sketchy, seedy. And they're definitely not the kind of company that an upstanding, righteous person should keep. So the Pharisees now 
critique the company that Jesus keeps and Jesus answers. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? The question in the first scene was who can forgive sins but God alone? In this scene, they critique the company he keeps. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? So not only was it Jesus, but his disciples had started to do that. The, the few that he had so far were doing that. The Pharisees voiced their criticism of Jesus's association with sinners and his willingness to have close reclining at table association with sinners. Interestingly, the word Pharisee carries the concept meaning separated one. Separated one. They live up to that for sure by separating themselves away from others physically and relationally and separating themselves above others religiously. Now we don't, again, I said most of us would be uncomfortable with this. Some of us, it, it, it ignites within you. Man, I wish that we would be more like that, getting around table. May your tribe increase. But you need to know table fellowship in Jesus' day was taken very seriously. It implied a deeper unity. You only eat with those you accept, those you like, or those you run in the same circles with. They despise, the Pharisees despise tax collectors as egregiously ungodly. So for Jesus to speak of God's kingdom and yet recline at table with these lowlifes was reprehensible to them. Therefore, in their minds, there's no way that Jesus could represent Yahweh and God's kingdom. There's no way. You hang out with that crowd, there's no way you can be God's man. There's no way you could be his messianic representative. <clears throat> well, Jesus answers their critique in verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Like who needs a doctor? It's those who are sick. And it's those who understand they're sick. And then for us men, that means like, okay, you are like already on your deathbed and have died and come back. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll go see a doctor. Like, the ones who need a doctor are those who are sick and they know they are sick. That's what he's saying. I have not come to call the righteous, is what the Pharisees assumed they were, but sinners, which is all of us. I've come to call sinners to repentance, which means a change of mind and it means a change of direction of life and orientation. Jesus is clarifying, he's making really clear this is intentional on my part, this intentional involvement in the lives of outsiders, outcasts, and sinners. Why did so many people show up at the party? Because that's good news. Because what have they experienced most of their life? You're a sinner. You're not worth it. You're outside. And Matthew says, I, I got to introduce you to my friend that I met, and he's called me to follow him. He's given me relationship with God, and I want you to meet him. Jesus moves toward people who understand their need and their real condition before God. But I want to say this, and I put it in mine in red. The Pharisees' problem is our problem. 
in a desire to remain pure, which is good, we can grow toxically insular, bent in on ourselves. Yes, we're to avoid ethical, moral compromise, but we're also to listen to this. Yes, we're to avoid ethical, moral compromise, but we are also to avoid isolating ourselves from the blatantly sinful or spiritually needy. And most of us in here need to hear that, that we are also to avoid isolating ourselves or separating ourselves from those who are spiritually needy. Colossians 4, uh, 5 and 6, we're to pray for and live Paul's prayer in Colossians 4, 5 and 6, to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Yes, have a wisdom. You're not supposed to run with them in the same dissipations, Peter would say. They're surprised. You don't run like that anymore, but you are with them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be surprised. We conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Does not conduct ourselves separate and away from them. We're to conduct ourselves with alertness and wisdom toward outsiders. That means you lean in to, their, to listen to them. That means you, you pause and you notice them. You ask them a question about what's going on in their world. You're on the lookout for windows of opportunity that the Lord opens up with your outsider coworker or, or someone that, that uh, at, at school students that you know it doesn't know the Lord. And you look for opportunities that God may open up, especially, notice this, especially through sharing table fellowship with them. That could be in your house. That could be at Starbucks. That, and I would tell you this, we ought to be experts at what the best places are to meet with people in our town. The, the mom and pop hole in the wall, um, places to eat breakfast, but also even mindful of, hey, I need to really talk with this person. I know they got some deep hurt going on. They don't need a raucous, you know, we, we don't need to be at um, something with all the screens and all the games on it. We need to kind of go to a place that we know we're thankful it's still open. We can't believe it is because only like four people are in there every week, whatever. And you find a booth and you go with them. Sharing table fellowship is one of the ways that we can live the way Jesus lives. Not isolating ourselves, but actually providing a welcome, getting with people on their turf in one, uh, in a way that is, communicates acceptance. It is incompatible with kingdom living or living as ambassadors to be so protective and paranoid like the Pharisees were that we move away from non-believers. Listen to what I'm saying. It is incompatible. It doesn't fit. It's not okay to live insular, only run with Christians, only be with people who keep their nose clean and dot their religious I's and cross their T's. We should be encouraging one another to live as devotedly as possible. But that devotion to Christ will show up in a welcome that is expressive of Christ's welcome. It is incompatible with kingdom living to be so protective and paranoid we move away. Jesus models with Levi and his friends that we're to be purposeful. We're to actually be proactive to be with non-believers, where our kingdom welcome opens the door for kingdom influence. I've said this before, but one of the reasons why 
I've coached all of our boys' teams over the years is because I don't want to be around Christians all the time. Sorry. I want to be where God has located me. It's even why, getting real specific about sports, is why I will, I don't, it's not 100% like we will never do that, but we try to actually push back against, well, let's join this league that goes all over the world. Now, we sort of can't, we can't avoid that right now in our football league because there's not enough teams anymore, concussions, all that stuff. So we had to go to uh, Rockwall last night. I'm just getting this off my chest. It's a long way away. But I'm telling you this because I don't want to go travel. My, my, the beat of our heart is not, let's make sure we get our kids, you know, in D1 readiness, going all over creation, all over the place. No, you know why I'm involved? I love sports. I want our kids to develop in that, and I want to be part of that. But it's so that we can be where God has located us, and I can be around those who don't know Christ. Or maybe they do, but they've lost their way. Every one of us has been located by God, and it is on purpose. It is assigned. And we are assigned to be his representatives with the Matthews of the world. Now, second critique pops up. <clears throat> he goes from, they go from critiquing the, the company that Jesus keeps, this Matthew and his friends. Now they're going to grumble about, they're going to critique um, religious rules or practices that Jesus doesn't keep. Verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. The Pharisees proudly are questioning why Jesus' followers don't follow all their rules and traditions. Jesus answers this critique with three tangible pictures to illustrate the power of relationship over rules to reach nonbelievers. He gives a picture of a groom. He gives a picture of garments that are torn and wineskins to hold new wine. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? He's like, how out of place is that? But the days will come and when the, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. I'm not going to camp on this. I do want you to know in that he's not wanting them to miss. I'm actually revealing something about myself. I'm the bridegroom. So my presence signifies what's appropriate. If the bridegroom's with you, joy, festivity. Why do we got to be all sour-faced? He says, but there'll be a time when he's taken away. And then that's a time to consider fasting, depending on the moment. 36, and he was also telling them a parable. Now he gives them three pictures. Or excuse me, the second picture. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Now, we don't do this. We just go buy new clothes now. But people used to fix their clothes. All right, that was just a jab at us, myself, really. Uh, otherwise, he will both tear the new uh, and the piece from the new will not match the old. In verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. This is the third picture. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It'll be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. And that is really saying how we can all get, we can all get, a little bit like, eh, it's good enough. Why do we have to have, why do we have to do a new thing? Why do we have to do this new? And we can get crusty and brittle, which is what an old wineskin gets. 
Through the picture of the groom and his friends, Jesus illustrates that his presence should be a time of joy and not somberness. The question there is, are you a party person or a party pooper? Honestly, some of us believe that Christian maturity is to be serious 100% of the time and be nothing but almost stern because that shows our seriousness and our devoutness. Jesus, what's he questioned for? He's drinking wine at Matthew's house. He's associating with him. And I don't think that they would have hung out with him long if he was a party pooper. If he was this somber, like, all right, I'm glad I got all y'all together. Now, let me tell you this. No, Jesus is okay to be misunderstood by the religious insiders because they're off base. I would encourage you, we have to conduct ourselves with wisdom in our relationships with outsiders. They can't be your core friends that you're always, I mean, there's gotta be some, some tension held there. But I want you to be okay and see that Jesus gives you permission to be misunderstood by others, that you would have associations with somebody who's obviously far from God. Oh, that we would be a people as a church who get the question, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Because if we get that reputation, we're on the right track. If we get the brittle old wineskin reputation, we may think we are doing really well. And Jesus would say, you're missing it. You're missing it. He illustrates through the garments and the wine that how Jesus himself differs from the old and the current Judaism of his day because the old ways can't contain the joy and the vitality that Jesus brings. The wardrobe, you can't patch up with worn out traditions. Tearing a worse, there's, he implies there's already a tear there in the old system. He's come to bring a new covenant and a worse tear will result if you just try to patch Jesus on to old traditions and an old broken covenant. Wine, because you can't contain the ever-expanding new life that Christ brings. In the process of fermentation, that, that wine is in there and the gas begins to expand and the new wineskin can go with it. But the old wineskin will burst and becoming brittle, it's unable to hold the new wine, which will expand. Jesus illustrates in these the power of relationship with him over rules to reach non-believers. Now, to apply this, as we seek to know the Lord Jesus more and walk in awe and allegiance of him, what does Luke want you and me, the next slide, to see? Uh, keep going until you get to a white slide. What does Luke want you and me to see and to know? Who is Jesus from these two scenes of the two who got up? First scene, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and he knows our hearts. He has the authority to forgive sins. If you're in a place of needing forgiveness, you need to know that Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive your sin. And he's eager and willing to do so for those who know their condition. And he also knows our hearts. He saw their faith, the friends and the paralytic, and he knew the Pharisees' disbelief and reasoning in their hearts. The second scene, what we learn about Jesus is he had the, he had the audacity in fact, he had the mission and call from God to have that audacity to move toward outsiders. Luke 19, 10, the key verse in the whole gospel of Luke, but the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
and not to spin his wheels too much with those who assume they're on the end. Jesus also wants us to know he notices and invites, like Matthew, he invites us into relationship with him and relationship trumps rules. What about their response? The two who got up because of Jesus, what's their response? The paralytic, there's a slide, there's a slide for this, their response. The paralytic, he says, friends, carry me to him, to Jesus, I believe. And he got up after Jesus healed him. He got up and he glorified God. Levi, he said, my friends, after Jesus had called him and he followed him, he says, my friends, meet him, this one who reached out to me. If it's possible he reached out to me, it's possible he'll reach out. And he's open and welcoming and inviting you. And he got up and followed Jesus. These two scenes are, as they said in the first one, they're remarkable. It's remarkable that Jesus being perfect and fully God would have anything to do with the paralytic or Matthew or you or me. But imagine, imagine the paralytic. Not only did Jesus notice him and he got the eyes of his savior locked on him with compassion. Imagine after the paralytic got up and he took off, did he frame his mat? Did he burn his mat? Did he tell his story over and over and over? What about Levi? Imagine him after that day of leaving his tax booth and he's never turning back. Did he continue being a thankful man? Did he remain tender toward outsiders himself, noticing them? moving toward them and not away from them, being intentional to introduce them, intentional to introduce them to his savior? Or did he find himself for a right reason, right motivation, becoming rule rigid, becoming proud, separating himself from sinners? Well, that asks what's our response? What's your response? The call is get up and follow Jesus. How can we exercise this passage in our everyday where the welcome and mercy of Jesus are on display through us as his ambassadors? First of all, I want to give us a warning. The warning, and especially in the second scene, is beware of growing insular. Beware of becoming inappropriately brittle. These religious leaders' traditions probably started from a good desire to be pure, to be devoted to the Lord. But that festered into being separated instead of being distinctive and among. Their discipline and ours to express devotion, if we're not careful, can dry up into a way of keeping score for ourselves and others. And it can end up lifeless. Lifeless with empty religion and not expressing the life and the way of Jesus. Second thing is, who are the Matthews that God is calling you to express his welcome and mercy to? They could be your neighbors. Um, this Tuesday night, we've, we've tried to put this out there every year as a church that it's happened. 
but this Tuesday night is the Allen version of the National Neighbor Night Out. Some of you are aware of that. Some of you, um, in past years, many of us have actually been the host in our neighborhood. You probably still could, as, as late as we all decide to do things nowadays, you probably still could call the Allen Police Department and say, hey, is there one for Summerfield neighborhood? They'll say, actually, no, there's not. Oh, hey, could I be that person? And you could coordinate getting together. But there probably is one going in your neighborhood. Find out. A lot of times it's simply a block party. People just pull out lawn chairs for an hour and a half. But I encourage you, be with your actual neighbors and see what God would do. Could be your business associates. But God intends, whether it's your neighbors, coworkers, um, you know, business associates, moms in a mom's group, fellow students. God intends for the welcome and mercy of his son to be on display through you, right where he's located you, in your school hall, in your corporate headquarters, in your PJs, but up top it's a suit because you're on a Zoom, wherever that is. He's, hopefully you're not relating like, you know, and never mind. Be at least business, business casual when you're face-to-face with people. <laughs> this is a kingdom ministry every one of us can do and are called to do. And it can start by learning a name. It can move to grabbing a meal or coffee with someone who is an outsider. It could be throwing or attending a party with neighbors, like I said, on Tuesday night or coworkers who don't know Jesus. In fact, that's another way you can practically apply this. Throw a Matthew dinner party. That would reflect... God's heart. Neighboring is one of our core values as a church. We believe that our neighborhoods are more like strangerhoods nowadays, but they should be different because we live there. And people are starving right next door to you in your neighborhood. It's the rare event in our day of actually inviting someone into your home, to your table, and enjoying the power of the coffee or the party the life-giving experience of sharing a simple meal and keeping company with others, even if others will critique your company with them. And if they're part of this fellowship and they critique your company and your intention is this, let's figure out how to lovingly help them understand, but don't let it sidetrack you. The grace of Jesus is well expressed when we grab a meal with an outsider. We open our homes to extend welcome to those who don't know him. And I want to say this. If it's a choice between now and Christmas this fall, if we'd have 200 more people sitting in seats here or 20 of you hosting a Matthew party, we'll take your table every time. We'll take your coffee with that one coworker every time. Hosting a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And right as you're saying, can you pass the corn your neighbor is getting a taste of Jesus's grace and a foretaste of his eternal kingdom. I want to ask the worship team to come up. These were two scenes of grace in the paralytic's life and in Matthew's life. Just think about your own scene of grace. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God and his mercy, not you earning it that puts us in the right relationship with God. And that's the story of every single one of us. And only Jesus has the authority to put us in right relationship with God, to forgive us of our sins because of his finished work on the cross for you and me. Scripture tells us 
we're all outsiders from God because of our sin. If you've never trusted him and his payment for your sin on the cross, he's initiating with you today, like, let this be today, your scene of my grace in your life. He's initiating with you to generate an investigation into who is this Jesus? He's the one who said, I love you and I died in your place so that you don't have to try because you can't get to God on your own terms. But through me, you can know life and life to the full. Would you stand? We're going to sing that invitation, come as you are, and I'll give us a benediction in closing. Those who are outside, who have hurts, who've been ostracized, those who are deep in sin, far from God. I, I pray that what we've just sung here, it's an invitation to all, but I pray that that would be what resounds from our life, a, a welcome and invitation to them, come as you are. Men, they know the welcome, the grace and mercy of Jesus through our faces, through our welcome, through our listening. People are hurting all around you. And they don't need to know your perfection. You don't have to do it polishedly. But boy, if they could know your Savior. Our benediction is from 1 Timothy 1. It's Paul himself. His testimony is really our testimony. He said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, and yet visible through you and me, the only God, the honor and glory.